Uh, For the rest of us, can you turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 22? Luke chapter 22. You know, no one loved life more than Jesus did. But also no one hated sin more than Jesus did. No one had the connection with the Father on a human level other than Jesus. And when Jesus suffered for us, when he suffered the agony that he was going to suffer, what we find is that he prayed. He prayed earnestly in the midst of that great suffering. He prayed earnestly in the midst of his great agony. And we would learn much from him today. Look with me in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 and following. It says, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you were willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You know, as we enter this um, garden of Gethsemane, this is, this is holy ground. This is where we will see Jesus, the man of sorrow. What a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. It's the apex of his sorrow. It's beyond our comprehension. There is no one who has ever suffered like Jesus Christ has suffered. I heard someone once say, what is your Gethsemane moment? None of us have experienced Gethsemane. We may have experienced betrayal. We may have experienced denial. We may have experienced hurt and sorrow, but no one has experienced what Christ suffered for us. This is absolutely unique. And nothing that we can really truly understand in and of our own ability. This is the greatest battle right now it begins of all. It's incalculable in its depth. Do you understand what Christ went through? No. (laughs) You can't. Jesus lived a life of suffering, and his suffering is beginning in its earnest now. We look to the cross as the ultimate aspect of his suffering, but the hour has now come. Throughout the gospel, we have been seeing that Jesus has been saying, my hour is not yet here. And time after time, by supernatural ways, he avoided the death, his death or his imprisonment. But now it is at this place in time that the hour has come. It is time for Jesus' death. You know, what I find in this passage is that it teaches about the dual nature of Christ. Jesus Christ was fully God 
and fully human. You must appreciate that as you read this text. At times we have a tendency to exaggerate one over the other. We maximize his deity, we minimize his humanity. Or we maximize his humanity, we minimize his deity, but he was fully God and fully man. Please realize that everything that he did throughout his whole life was by the will of his Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. As Jesus comes to this point now, as he comes to the end of his life, every relationship is being peeled away, relationship by relationship. Jesus knew that he was going to the cross. He knew he was going to sorrow. He had a general information of that early on. What we find is that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Jesus knew that he was going to go to the cross, but now it is becoming experiential. Today is the day. Today is the last day that I will breathe on this earth before I rise again. I can't know if you can imagine the compounding stressors that must have been upon him. The rejection on a human level, yes, but now he was going to have to bear the weight of sin. Can you imagine what a holy God must have assumed or would have felt? God hates sin. And Jesus was going to have to put himself under the wrath of God for humanity's sin. The stress, the pressure, the pain, the suffering, the trial. Does this story ever become mundane to you? You know, I'm almost reaching my fifth decade of life. I don't know how many Easter Sundays and Easter messages that I've gone through. And as you hear the message, sometimes it's just mundane. It's routine. Don't let it ever be for you. For what did Christ die? Jesus suffered more than anyone else on his cross. His moment-by-moment -moment obedience points to our moment-by-moment -moment failures. What we find in this passage, it says, and he came and he went out right after the Lord's Supper. He went as with his custom. Every night of Passover week, Jesus Christ would break away and go to the Mount of Olives and specifically to this Garden of Gethsemane. It was a place where there were no lights. It was dark. It was a place that he was going to take his disciples and pray. He was praying to his father he was praying about the temptation that was yet to come. Jesus did it again here on Thursday evening. He has just, as Pastor Doug preached on last, uh, last time, um, brought us to this upper room. In the upper room, you remember, he has washed the disciples' feet. He has shared in a meal with them. He has broken bread. He has shared a cup. What we don't find in Luke's gospel, what we find in the other gospels is that he will pray strong prayers for his people. He will pray that God's will will be done. He will pray that God would glorify the son. He would pray for protection for his disciples. And he would even pray for you in that garden on that last night. Prayer was an important part of Jesus' life. Throughout the gospel record, we find that Jesus would oftentimes break away and pray. He prayed every moment throughout his life. And if that's the case with the perfect son of God, how much more so should it be for us? Prayer is the most common and most central of all the spiritual beliefs because it ushers us in to the perpetual presence of God. So why is it that most Christians don't pray? The unlimited potential of prayer is seen in the promises that God has told us in Scripture, and it's staggering. 
And as God moves into action in our lives and situations that we bring before him, yet little prayer is done. Why? I think the prayer lives of many people become so discouraging and defeating and frustrating. The basic belief is that we're going to move God to our way of thinking. And that in prayer, I'm going to move you, God. And when God doesn't move in the way we would like, we find ourselves discouraged and frustrated. And then we go and do it ourselves, right? It's exactly what we don't learn from Christ here. That Christ went and prayed earnestly for God's will to be done. God, here is my plea to you. However, nevertheless, let your will be done. Sometimes I think we think it's easier to do it ourselves than to get God involved. But instead, in prayer, we need to be seeking God's way, God's view. And that's where he will move us to obey. So after we've left the upper room, Jesus offered a review of the past. He talked about the future, and he specifically talked to these apostles. He talked about what the Father was going to do for them. He talked about what he was going to do as he went to the cross. And he warned his disciples to do what? pray. He sings a song with them and they go out to the Mount of Olives. He gives another prediction of his death even as they're walking to the Mount of Olives. He predicts that they would see him in Galilee after his resurrection. He predicts again Peter's three denials. He crosses the brook Kidron and he comes into this Mount of Olives. Centuries before David walked in the same place, walked in the same place as Jesus is walking in this place this evening. Jesus goes into this Mount of Olives and he takes his 11 apostles, Judas is gone, eight of which he leaves here and then he calls the other three, Peter, James, and John, the ones that were closest to him of this 12, he calls them to go a little bit further and he urges each of his disciples to pray. He urges Peter, James, and John, pray. But then Jesus takes a step further. He goes a stone's throw away because where he is going, no one can go. Where he is going, he's going to have to go alone. Jesus experiences agony of this hour. It's sorrowful. It's amazing. It's deeply depressed. His soul was, in fact, near death. In Isaiah, it says that he was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And he is feeling that at this moment right now. Luke the Gospels are important because they give us um, three different, uh, four different witnesses of an occasion. And when you get different witnesses, each one are going to add information. And if you take the four Gospels in total, you will find that there's some information that Luke chooses not to add in here. What we find is not just one prayer. It's a series of prayers that Jesus had. It's not just one time he came back to his apostles. It's a series of times he comes back to his apostles, finding them asleep, urging them to pray. Jesus first, we see this in Matthew 26, he has his first garden prayer, and it's at this time he kneels. And in fact, what we find in Matthew and Mark, it's not just kneeling, he falls down on his face. The normal way of praying at that time would have been to stand and to look up. What Jesus is now doing is he's flat on his face right now because of the pressure that is upon him and what he is going to have to endure. And he prays a prayer that, Father, please remove this cup from me. As Pastor Doug talked about, there was the cup of wrath and the cup of blessing. This cup that he's asking for it to be removed is this cup of wrath. Lord, 
take this away from me. Then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, after this initial prayer, goes back and finds his disciples sleeping. What we find in the gospel accounts, they're sleeping because of sorrow. You ever feel that way at times? When you, get your, when you find yourself depressed and discouraged and frustrated, we find ourselves trying to sleep it away. Well, Jesus knew you could not sleep the cross away. The cross is there just hours down the road. And Jesus is praying for these disciples, and he's urging them to pray. He finds them sleeping, and then he says, pray. And then he goes back for a second time, and he kneels in prayer. And that's where Luke picks up this idea of the sweat, dropping like great beads of blood. Now, there are some commentators, as I got a chance to read this section, that believe that this is just a symbolism, that his sweat is pouring over him as though blood was pouring out of him. That may be true. It could also be a medical situation where we become under such great intense pain and frustration that blood vessels start to burst and blood comes out of our sweat. I do not know which one it is. I believe the second. But the reality is this. Jesus is drenched. He is overwhelmed with what he is going to have to bear. He pleads again, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Here he says again, nevertheless, if I cannot pass this from me unless I drink it, not my will, let yours be done. We find now an angel comes to him and ministers to him. I don't know what the angel is doing, but what I do know is this, that at the beginning of his earthly ministry, you remember back in after he was baptized? Then he was pushed out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And as he spent that time and he's being tempted by Satan with the greatest temptation that you can ever imagine, don't go to the cross. I will give you glory without the cross. Jesus is being tempted again. And an angel ministered to him after that wilderness temptation and an angel is ministering to him now. An angel is one in which is a messenger. I don't know if the message was God loves you. I don't know. I don't know if it was ministering to his body. I don't know. But what I do know is this, that Jesus was ministered to here in the garden. He now, for the second time, comes back and finds his disciples sleeping. And instead of getting annoyed and frustrated, Jesus once again urges them to do what? Pray. Jesus now goes for the third time. Mark 14 tells us that he is surprised by the terror. He feels this heavy load that's upon him. He is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. And he makes his third garden prayer, Matthew 26, 44. And he comes back for the third time. And he finds his disciples sleeping. And he says, are you sleeping now? You're taking your rest? It is enough. Behold, the hour has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed into your hands, into the hands of sinners. What do we learn? What do I learn? I hope you can learn from this. The first thing that I learn is that Jesus was completely and totally isolated. He was utterly alone. All the friendships, all the relationships that he had formed on a human level would now leave. He was the only one that was going to go to this cross. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, we have been finding that Jesus has set his fate steadfastly towards Jerusalem. He was determined to move towards this cross. But we find the disciples were constantly following him and with him. 
They were always near and dear to him, but not now. The disciples stood at a distance. They could not come where he was going. They could not follow. Jesus would have to endure this alone. That's the first thing I learned. He was isolated. The second thing I learned from this passage is that Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed fervently. Jesus prayed persistently. And Jesus prayed powerfully. Jesus prayed submissively. See, oftentimes our struggle with prayer is that we want to move, we want to get God to move to our way of thinking. Jesus prayed earnestly, his deepest passion to God. But he says, God, I'm submitting to you. And if that's the way Jesus prayed, how much more so should we pray? Well, if the first thing is that Jesus was totally isolated, second was Jesus prayed fervently, persistently, and powerfully, the third thing I realized is that Jesus was submissive. He said, not my will, but yours be done. There was really nothing within Jesus that desired to do this. You know, on a human level, we find martyrs going to their death time after time, and sometimes they do it with, with almost a seeming level of peace, right? Just months later, we're going to see Stephen, and Stephen is going to be saying, you know, Father, forgive them. We're going to find in the acts of the apostles, apostles that were in prison, and they're praising God and singing as they were struggling. Why not Jesus? Because nobody's ever experienced Gethsemane. Nobody has ever experienced the passion and the struggles that he was going to have to endure, the cup that he would have to drink. I want you to try to consider for a moment that this is the holy God and perfect man. And what Christ was going to endure was the wrath of God's uh, wrath of God against humanity's sin that was going to be poured out upon him. Jesus is fully God and he hates sin, but he was going to have to become sin as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. You have to expect he would reject this. You would have to expect that he would question this. You have to expect that he would look for another way. God, is there another way? Jesus knew there wasn't. But from his human viewpoint, he is crying out, Lord, take this cup from me. Remove this. Did Jesus stumble here? No. Did Jesus go unwilling to the cross? No. Scripture tells us, and he told us, that no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. Is this weakness in the Lord? No, it's just a proof of his holiness. It's a proof of his holiness that he was going to have to substitute himself to bear our sin. And it's absolutely hated by God. Jesus was paying the price for Adam's sin and your sin. For your disobedience and Adam's sin. Adam had his tree, Jesus has his. Paul said that Jesus became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He did that for you. He did that for me. He submitted himself to the Father's will. He gave us life that we could not live and deserve, and he died a death that we absolutely deserve. Do not pity him. Praise him. Oh, how marvelous. <clears throat> oh, how wonderful. Is my Savior's love for me. 
The fourth thing I recognize from this passage is this, that Jesus substituted himself. That's what the atonement is all about. Jesus gave the cup of blessing, as Pastor Doug told us about. He gave the disciples the cup of blessing so that we could, so that he could receive the cup of wrath. He instituted a sacrament, a sacred worship service that we do when we break bread and drink the cup. And that message was pointing to the death that he was going to endure. We receive blessing. He receives wrath. Why? Man was fallen in their disobedience. Our four parents, Adam and Eve, fell. Men and women, all of us, are guilty before God, corrupted by the power of sin. But in every episode of life, God has been pointing us to the cross. God has been pointing us to this Last Supper. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, I'm sorry, in the Garden of Eden, as Adam and Eve have sinned, do you remember what God did? He covered what? He covered their nakedness. And how did he do that? Something had to die in order, in order for them to be covered. He was pointing you to the cross. He was pointing Adam and Eve and everyone from the Old Testament to the cross. And we all look back at the cross. It becomes the culmination of history. The central act of all humanity. The central truth for our Christian faith. Christ suffered and died in your presence. For you. So no one has ever experienced this Gethsemane moment. We all find ourselves under pressure at times. We all find ourselves discouraged and defeated, but no one has ever experienced what Christ was going to experience for you. The weight of God's wrath was going to be poured out upon him. No one has experienced the loss. No one has experienced the fear. No one has experienced the pain. No one has experienced the thing that is most hated, like Christ was going to have to endure for you. Since he experienced what we could never experience, he can sympathize when you go through your fears. He can sympathize when you go through your struggles. When you go through your terrors and your trials, he can understand because he has gone through greater and he can help you work through. He sympathizes with you. He empathizes with you. He can bring you through. The story continues from God's submission to self-exaltation. In verse 44, it says this, while they were speaking, there was a crowd. And a man, Judas, was one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, Shall we strike with the sword? You remember what Pastor Doug was preaching, the two swords that they had? We grab one of the swords and attack. And one of them, not even waiting, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the ear and healed it. And Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers in the temple and elders who came out after him, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs? While I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour, the power of darkness. The submission of Christ is contrasted now with the self-exaltation. The exaltation, self-exaltation of the crowd. The self-exaltation of Judas and the self-exaltation of Peter. 
what we find here is the crowd, and it's estimated that this crowd could have been almost a thousand people are walking up through this dark, dense garden. They would never have been able to find Jesus on their own. That is why they needed Judas. And Judas was going to go and stand before Christ, and he could have just pointed to Christ. He could have just said, here he is. But what he chose to do was probably one of the most despicable things that a human being has ever done. He took the act of love and he attacked Christ. Betrayal is big, right? Have any of you ever been betrayed? I'm sure you have. Has anybody ever mistreated you or broken your trust? I'm sure every one of you can think of at least one or more. And betrayal is great because is, is great and it's difficult because you think of all that you've done for that person and now they've betrayed you. They've betrayed your trust and all the love that you've poured out to them. But no one has ever been betrayed like Christ because no one has ever been perfect like Christ. Christ, in his perfect love and his perfect life, had done nothing but the best for Judas. And Judas planted a kiss of betrayal on his cheek. Jesus had done some amazing things for Judas. He brought him among the twelve. He taught him. He gave him ministry to serve in the body, which is a scary thing. Because just because you're a minister doesn't mean that you are saved. He empowered him to teach. He actually even gave him opportunities to heal by the work of the, God, of the Spirit in him. And even on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus washed this betrayer's feet. All the while knowing that this betrayer was going to plant a kiss on him. The height of arrogance. The height of coldness. The height of self-exaltation. The soldiers approach him, and Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. We don't see that in this passage. We see this other gospel passages. He says, I am he. They fell back. Jesus showing his power, just even in just his word, and they withdrew from him. We find the disciple here saying, shall we strike with the sword? What he was trying to do is strike at his neck in all likelihood. He missed. He hit his ear. Peter was not a soldier. Peter was a fisherman. What I find in a level of self-exaltation with Peter is this. He asked Jesus in verse 49, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? But did he wait for the answer? No. He acted impulsively, impetuously, presumptively. Do you do the same? I know I do. And then Jesus said, no more of this. One author put it this way. No more vengeful thoughts. No more angry words. No more manipulation or retaliation. No more getting even. Instead, we are called to follow the example of Christ. What did Christ do? He blessed his enemy. The captor that is coming to him, whose ear has been severed, he heals his ear. Compassion. As he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays that his disciples pray. He is urging them compassion. Even with Judas here, if you read this, he calls Judas by name. He doesn't demean Judas. 
he doesn't rail at Judas. He calls him by name and he shows compassion to him. Jesus showed more compassion to Judas than Judas has ever shown to Christ. He showed more respect to Judas than Judas had ever shown to Christ. He showed more love to Judas than he had ever shown love to Christ. But that's me. And that's every single one of us. Last thing I want you to consider is Peter's self-confidence. It says in verse 40, 54, it says that he, they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter followed at a distance. And when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down, Peter sat down among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking at him closely, said, this man was with him. And he denied it, said, woman, I don't know him. And a little later, and it could be hours later, a little later, someone else saw him and said, you're the one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after a interval of another hour, still another insisted, certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed. You remember that Jesus had predicted that Peter was going to deny him before the rooster crowed. Three times he was going to deny him. Jesus' submission points to self-exaltation of the crowd, self-exaltation of Peter, self-exaltation of Judas, which points to our overconfidence, our self-confidence. Peter thought that he could endure this trial on his own. We do the same. Peter was prayerless. Peter was prideful. Peter was living according to his own plan. Peter was living according to his own power. And you remember what the Proverbs say, pride goes before what? Destruction. A haughty spirit before the fall. One author put it this way, I like this. He said, Peter boasted too much, prayed too little, acted too quickly, followed too far at a distance. That's me. And that's you. The rest of the story are a series of trials that are sham. As you get a chance to read this, Lord willing, later today, I want you to see how a perfect and sinless Savior is mistreated. In fact, if you read the gospel accounts on seven occasions, Jesus was pronounced not guilty by the judge, innocent of the charges, and yet they punished him. Who's the innocent one here and who's the guilty? The trials that were given were saying that Christ was guilty. It's kind of crazy because he's the most innocent one ever lived. Those that were sitting in judgment of him is kind of crazy because he was the one that is going to be ultimately their judge. Those that were doing this had no conscience. They were not pricked at all by what they were doing. Moment by moment, Jesus was experiencing continual wrong. But isn't that the gospel? The gospel points us to this, that someone else is going to have to bear the wrath of our sin, or we will bear it ourselves. The whole Old Testament is looking to this day. The whole Old Testament looks to what we're studying this morning. 
The Old Testament looks to one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It looks back in the Garden of Eden to the animal that was slain, symbolized in Christ. The ark that took the family through the raging waters is Christ. Joseph in the Old Testament, who was wrongly accused and imprisoned and went ahead of his family to protect him, is symbolizing Christ. Every prophet, every priest, every king of the Old Testament is pointing to the only prophet and priest and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of human history focuses either forward or backward towards this time, to this man, to this life, to this time at the cross. The weight of human history now falls upon his back. The weight of humanity's sin now falls on his back. And the greatest separation that will be experienced when I will be falling upon him, never ever minimize what Christ has done for you. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So as we close, I want you to consider this. Every one of us are failures. If it were you or me, we would be falling in failure in the Garden of Gethsemane because of sorrow. None of us are going to pray with the earnestness that Christ prayed. None of us are going to be perfect. There's not a moment. Every moment-by-moment disobedience is going to point to the one who is moment-by-moment obedient. Our failure points to his glory. Our denial points to the fact he never denied us. Our betrayal points to the fact that he is faithful. Our judging him points to the fact that he was judged for you. Jesus loves you. Trust him. Place your faith in him. Follow him. Bless him. Praise him. Lord, we, we come before you this morning.